you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to open it with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And this morning we'll give our attention, beginning with Ecclesiastes 3, 16, and then we'll read into chapter 4, verse 3. So Ecclesiastes 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 3. While you're finding your place there uh, in a copy of God's Word, just a, a quick um, echo of what Ethan has already shared. Thank you, church for your support to our student ministry over this weekend as they came together for D-NOW. Uh, many of you were involved in hosting students in your home or providing a meal for students. Uh, many of you were here on the campus when they gathered for their times of worship. And uh, all of that couldn't have happened without you. So incredibly thankful for your investment in our students. But I also want to say especially uh, a word of appreciation for our student minister, Ethan. Uh, student uh, the now weekend happened uh, because of a desire that the Lord laid upon his heart. He began working over a year ago to put this event together, reaching out to other churches here in our area to encourage them to come along as well. And so through much hard work, uh, I'm thankful uh, that that came to pass and thankful for Ethan and his ministry among us here at Poplar Springs. He and his wife Shanda, their family, the investment that they make in our students uh, is absolutely incredible. And church, you're blessed, incredibly blessed. Uh, that we have him serving here with us. So, Ethan, thank you, brother, uh, for what you gave to us this weekend, for pouring into our students. All right, let's get into the Word this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading with verse 16. encourage you to follow along and hear God's Word this morning, Ecclesiastes 3, beginning with verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there's a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. May the Lord bless this morning the reading and the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we give our thanks to you now for this, your holy word, and we pray that your word would go forth in demonstration and power of your spirit. Father, we pray today that your word would go forth and accomplish your eternal purposes, for we know that your word does not go forth and return void. So may it work mightily in our hearts today, O Lord. Father, I pray, give us eyes that we may see and ears that we might hear and hearts that would be soft to believe and obey your word today, for we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's certainly no surprise to any of us this morning that we are a culture that likes to be entertained. 
And we find entertainment in a variety of ways, but perhaps the most popular is what we watch upon our screens. Whether it's the television screen in our home or the iPad screen or the phone screen or whether we go to the big screen and catch a movie. And what we watch upon our screens says a lot about us. What's appealing and captivating us uh, in those shows, uh, in the movies, in the sitcoms, even in the docu-series that we watch is a revelation about what our hearts desire. We're drawn to those, those shows, to those screens, because there's something within us that resonates with what we're seeing. And by far, I believe, the most enduring and attractive productions that we watch play out are the familiar storylines of good versus evil, bad guys and good guys, right against wrong. And in those that we love so much, it's justice that always prevails. It's the good guys who always win. And we're drawn to that because that's what our hearts crave. That's what our hearts desire. We long for justice. We want right to prevail. We want the good guys to win. And we want the wrong to be judged. We want justice to be served. But unfortunately... We know that what happens on the screen doesn't always happen in life. As we continue in our study of Ecclesiastes, this interesting book in the Old Testament, if you're joining with us today as a guest or uh, maybe your first time here, we've been in Ecclesiastes now for a few Sundays, and it's a unique book in God's Word. It's part poetry, it's part philosophy, all wrapped up in a personal testimony of someone who describes himself as the preacher. And we presume that that preacher is Solomon, the wisest man who lived upon the face of the earth. And he's making observations, he's drawing conclusions of what he sees happening in life before him. And today he continues with his observations. He's looking at life under the sun, life in this world as we know it. Life lived apart from heaven, life in a world that is broken by sin. Life in a world that feels the curse of sin. Life in a world that has been bent and seemingly cannot be set straight. And today he's casting his glance upon the courtroom. He looks to the halls of justice. And sadly, in the broken world, he finds that even the halls of justice are impacted by wickedness. Even places of righteousness feel the sting of sin. He comes to this observation on the, the hills of his consideration about time and seasons in life. We, we looked at that last Sunday, the beginning of chapter 3. That familiar passage, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And now he seems to ponder on the hills of that consideration if there will ever be a time when things will be made right in a world that seems to be so wrong. He's wondering, will that time come? Because it seems to escape every opportunity down here as we know it. And if I may build upon our playlist in relation to the book of Ecclesiastes once more, I'm borrowing for the title of this sermon today, the title of an old gospel hymn, A Great Day Coming. There's a great day coming, a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by. And it's that great day that the preacher puts before us in the text. He preaches 
of that great day coming when justice will be served. There's two parts to the passage that I want you to see. There's, there's two parts to the text. First, we need to notice life's injustice. Life's injustice. This is what drives the preacher's consideration. This is where the passage begins. He says, moreover, or also, as I looked around at the world as we know it, he said, I looked in the place of justice, and even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. As he looks at the world broken by sin, the preacher of Ecclesiastes can't help but notice that that brings injustice. And he's not particularly shocked that the world broken by sin is an unjust place. I mean, we all know that. We, we all feel that. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's particularly shocked that this injustice reaches to places of great power and prestige. He's particularly shocked that you find injustice even in a place where justice is to be meted out. He says that I looked at life under the sun. He said in the place of justice, that is in the courtroom, in the halls of justice itself. He says, I found wickedness. We know this. We see this even in our day. Corrupt lawyers, corrupt judges. We might even add corrupt politicians in places of very important power and responsibility. We feel the brokenness of this world. But he continues on and he says, even in the place of righteousness, even there, there was wickedness. There's a couple of ways we can understand that statement, the place of righteousness. It could be in reference to those who sit, again, in those important places, being charged to do the right thing and the exercising of their obligations. They are to do it according to justice. They are to do right. But yet even there he sees that there's corruption and broke, excuse me, brokenness and wickedness. He sees the impact of sin in that place. It could be the courtroom that he's considering, but it could also be, and many believe this is what he's saying, he sees the brokenness not even in the courtroom, the place of justice, but the place of righteousness as well. In his day and time, that would have been the temple, the place of righteousness. We would say it this way, even in the church, from the courtroom to the church, he says, we feel the brokenness of sin. And sadly, we can all give testimony to that today as well, can't we? We hear the news stories of trials that have gone awry. The evidence seems clear. A verdict can certainly be derived, but yet they get away with murder. We lament that. We see the wickedness in that. But even in the church house sometimes... Sadly, we've all heard the reports. We've all seen the stories of those who are to be reverent, and instead they're irreverent. There's wickedness and injustice in this world. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is lamenting that. We get to chapter 4, and he picks up that theme again, although slightly different. This time he's not looking at the systems of justice so much, but, but he's simply taking a glance of broad culture, and he says, when I look around me under the sun, I see oppression. He sees injustice taking place because the most vulnerable and the most innocent among us are being taken advantage of over and over and over again. And we know that, don't we? We see that. We see the wickedness in this world today. The obvious, we think of terrorism. We think of the trafficking of children that is so common now. The preying upon the innocent, the vulnerable. And he laments that. He's overwhelmed by that. 
He cries out that those who are oppressed shed tears unceasingly because they want some comfort, but yet seemingly there's no one to comfort them. All the power resides on those who are oppressing. There's great frustration here. But that frustration is not just found on the pages of Ecclesiastes. We know it in our life also, don't we? We understand the frustrations of injustice, maybe not to the degree that he's lamenting, but maybe it's the job where you work. And you do the job the right way, and you get all the work done, you complete the project, but it's another coworker who receives the accolades and gets the promotion. Or maybe you do it all right, but yet the boss who is over you is unjust in how he handles things. We understand that frustration, don't we? And we understand the frustration of our inability to really make a true and lasting change in some of the things that we so desperately want to correct. We understand that, that yes, we may be able to do a good thing here in this particular case, but, but what we know about injustice is that it's far more overarching and far more sweeping than we would like to imagine and acknowledge. So while we may be able to do a good thing, we can't do the greatest of things and alleviate it like we desire. But yet we go about things in the right way. But there never seems to be a reward. It always seems that those who do it wrong are the ones who seemingly are rewarded. In this world, we know that right doesn't always prevail. The good guys don't always win. And that the bad guys in life too often get away with it, don't they? We know that. We feel that. And it's irritating to me. I take a moment of personal confession. It irritates me that we can't put buggies up in the parking lot of grocery stores. To no end. To no end. They get away. Try as I might, I cannot catch them. They get away. Now that's minute and utterly in the scheme of things. I don't know that it matters much, but... We look at that injustice and it irks us. And then we go up from there to greater injustices and our hearts break even more and our frustrations rise even higher. We live in a world that's broken. We know the words of the psalmist from Psalm 73, verses 3 and 4. He declared, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. And they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He, he looks around him and he says, those who do evil and those who are unrighteous, they seem to have it so good. Everything seems to go their way. They never have any red lights. They're never short of money. They never have any health troubles. But yet they live in an unrighteous way. As he thinks of all of this, it ultimately leads the preacher of Ecclesiastes to, to make some dire statements. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, as he thought about this, he says, I thought about the dead who are already dead and that they're more fortunate than us who are alive. They're not having to face these things. They're not having to deal with this injustice, how fortunate they are. And then in verse 3, he says, but... Better than both of those is the one who has not yet been born and hasn't seen all of the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Now that's some strong and striking language, but I would dare to venture this morning that you probably had some very similar thoughts, haven't you? Well, it'd be a whole lot better if I just wasn't here. It's a wonderful life, right? 
What if I had never been? I wouldn't have to deal with all of these things. I wouldn't have to face these things. And perhaps when you were beginning a family, you and your, your spouse, you began to talk about bringing children into your family. And maybe you had the thought or maybe even the conversation, are we sure we really want to bring kids into this world? Have you seen how absolutely crazy this world is? Have you seen how unjust this world is? Have you seen how evil this world is? The preacher is lamenting that here. It's life under the sun. It's life in a world that's east of Eden. Life in a world where sin has entered into the picture. And I think that's why we love those shows that I talked about earlier. Where the good guys win. The guys in white hats prevail. Those who are doing wrong, they, they meet their justice. We like that. Because that's the outcome that we desperately want. But what the preacher of Ecclesiastes reminds us is that's not how life works in this world. Life isn't always fair. And that brings us to the second part of the passage. As he's done throughout his observations of life under the sun, he's considered a particular aspect, and then he draws a conclusion from it. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, even though his mantra in Ecclesiastes is vanity of vanities, all is vanities, life is futile and life is meaningless under the sun, that's not entirely the case. And the meaning that we long for in life is found when we bring God into life with us. He's what helps us to make sense in a world that makes no sense at all. And the preacher is beginning to proclaim that to us, and he does it here again. He begins by reminding us of life's injustice, something that we could all give testimony to. And then he moves, secondly, to God's judgment. God's judgment. Verse 17, chapter 3. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. And suddenly hope begins to spring off the page again. Suddenly not all is futile. Suddenly not all is meaningless in life. Because the preacher proclaims that there is a day of judgment coming. God will judge. And how encouraging that should be to us. He was wondering... Will there be a time? Will there be a season when those who are evil, those who are wicked, those who are wrong will be dealt with? One of the considerations that the, the preacher of Ecclesiastes gives to us over and over and over again is the reality that both the righteous and the wicked die. He says that even here in our text that, that we become like beasts and as our dogs die, so we die. From dust we came and from dust we go back to. And so he seems to reason that if even the, the good die along with the evil dying, what kind of justice is that? We both wind up in the same place. That's really no justice at all. What good is it if death is the end, that if the terrorist who drove the plane into the building faces death, just like those who were inside the building face death? That settles nothing. And so here the preacher understands and puts forth hope that yes, there is a judgment that awaits the day of judgment by a holy and a just God. In Genesis 18, 25, Abraham is in a conversation with the Lord. He's going back and forth with what God's plans are for Sodom and Gomorrah and the, uh, his nephew Lot who is residing there. And as it concludes, Abraham says, 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And that's where we find hope in a world that is filled with great injustice. That there is a God who rules and reigns over it. And he is judge. And he will always judge rightly. He is exclusively qualified to be judge alone. For he alone is righteous in his character. He alone has all authority and all power to carry out the judgment that he meets. He alone possesses all wisdom and full discernment. And as such, he is able to judge squarely on fact, deed, and without discrimination. He is qualified to be the judge that we desperately long for in this life. And that's what the preacher puts before us. He is judge. Now that's good news, but it's also some terrifying news. Because it means that there's a day of judgment that is coming. The prophets in the Old Testament oftentimes spoke of this as the terrible and awesome day of the Lord. The day of his appearing when he will separate right and left sinners and saints, sheep and goats. It's the day in which he will make every wrong right. It's the day in which he will execute perfect justice upon all. Paul said in Acts chapter 17, as he was witnessing there to the believers, the Gentile believers in Athens, he said to them that the Lord has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He has fixed that day. That day is coming. And that's good news. It's been said that the wheels of God's justice turn slowly. I know how we recognize that. We see wrongs and we want them immediately corrected. We see injustice and we want it immediately overturned. We want justice and when do we want it? We want it now. And our hearts lament and we know frustration when that's not the case. But that doesn't mean that the wheels of God's justice are not in operation. From our perspective, those wheels turn slowly. But hear me this morning, God's wheels of justice will grind finally. For there's nothing that will escape his judgment. There's no one who will miss his judgment. All will stand and appear before him and give account to him as the holy judge. That day of judgment is something that we can be thankful for. And the preacher seems to understand this. He seems to take some relief in this, but it's not long that this understanding of God's judgment throws him back into some sort of consternation, some sort of struggle. And it's what I simply put the heading of as the, the dilemma of judgment. The dilemma of judgment. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a head-scratcher sometimes, right? I mean, you're following along, you think you're tracking with this guy, he's making some sense, and all of a sudden it's like a turn out of nowhere, and you're like, what is he saying, and why is he saying this? And our passage today is, is somewhat like that. We start in verse 16, the lament of injustice in places of great importance and prominence. We get that. Verse 17, God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a time and a matter for that that is coming. We look forward to that. We thank God for that. We come to chapter 4, and it seems to all make sense as well. He's lamenting those who are oppressed and the oppressors who are exercising unjust power over them. We get all of that. But sandwiched in the middle... It's this great head-scratcher. Because in the middle of these uh, couple of verses where he speaks about justice, all of a sudden he turns the conversation to beast. He starts talking about animals. And he starts saying, we're just like the animals. 
And if you're just reading along kind of casually, you're like, what in the world is this guy talking about? What, what's this interjection? But if we slow down and consider carefully, I think we discover that it's not really an interjection at all. And the turn that he's making is not quite as sharp as we might imagine. As he has acknowledged that the day is coming in which God will judge the righteous and the wicked. In verse 18, he says, uh, he said in his heart again, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. He's not going into a completely different subject here. He's continuing on with this thought, and we need to understand how and why. The word testing there that he uses in verse 18, it carries the idea of judgment as well. God is judging man. He's judging the children of man currently. And in the language that he uses here in this particular verses, there's an echo of what we read in Genesis. The language of beasts, the language of dust, the language of breath. And what seems to be coming across the preacher's mind is that he wants justice. We all want justice. We don't like injustice in high and important places. We don't like oppression against the vulnerable and the innocent in this world. We don't like the abuse of authority. We want justice and we rejoice that God can give us justice. But then a light bulb goes off. And he's like, oh no. Oh my. For he recognizes that his cry for justice condemns him as well. He recognizes that because of the fall, we're not much different than the beast. That because of the fall, our disobedience against God, our treason against God, we have acted unjustly against him. And while our hearts long for justice, what we really want is justice against everybody else. We want everybody else to be made right. We want everybody else to get right. We want everybody else to do right. But we must stop and consider that we ourselves are not right. That we ourselves stand in condemnation before a holy God and a just judge. This is the dilemma of judgment. And he makes that by comparing us to the beast. The words of the psalmist again in Psalm 73. He acknowledges before the Lord that I was brutish, I was arrogant, I was like a beast toward you. What he's saying here is that because of the fall of sin and the impact upon our inner being, upon our hearts, we become beastly in our nature before God. That we're really no different than them in our disdain and disregard for the holy things of God. And he says, as such, we die. Just like they die. Now let me be clear here. He, he is not doing away with what we refer to as the Imago Dei. He's not doing away with the image of God in man. He's upholding that. He's simply trying to draw our attention to the reality that if we want to talk about justice, we've got to be careful because we too will be judged. And as we stand before God, we stand condemned in our sin. And he says, ultimately, this is vanity. This this leads to a result that is not good for us. He says in verse 20, we all go to one place. And all are from the dust, and to the dust all return again. Under the sun, it seems like that's the reality. That's the end result. We live like beasts. We die like beasts. There's nothing that awaits. But we know he doesn't really believe that. That's not the statement that he's actually making. 
I said, well, how do you know that? Because he's already told us in verse 17 that there is a day of judgment that is coming. He understands that there is a day after death. There is life after death. There is eternity that awaits. And so he asked in verse 21, who knows then whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? Verse 22, he comes back to his refrain. So let's just enjoy things. Let's rejoice in our work. This is the lot that God has given to us. And then he asks another question. Who can bring us to see what will be after him? And it's here that the preacher begins to present us with the gospel again. He's recognized the dilemma. Under the sun, we're all guilty of injustice. Under the sun, we all stand charged before God. Under the sun, we all stand condemned because of our sin. And his question is, is there any hope? Is there any place that we can find refuge? Is there any hope that after we die, there's a place that we can go to? Is there any hope that someone can get us there? And this is the gospel, is it not? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. That yes, while we are sinners and while we deserve the justice of God poured out against us, Christ has come and in our place, he took our judgment. Paul would say it this way in Romans chapter 3 verse 26, that God is just. And because he is a just God, because he is a just judge, he cannot tolerate sin going unjudged, unpunished. And the wages of our sin is death. Not just physical death, but eternal separation from a holy God as well. But God in grace and mercy sent his son into the world, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect and a sinless life, but laid his life down in our place. And upon him, our sins were laid. And at the cross, he took our judgment. And so Paul says, by what God has done in the gospel of his son, he remained just in judging sin, but at the same time, he was able to become the justifier of sinners. He was able to say that by faith in my son, your sins can be forgiven. By faith in my son, you can be set free. By faith in my son, you can be declared justified in my sight. Oh, it's not that your sins have gone unchecked. It's not that judgment against your sins didn't take place. Oh, it did. But Jesus took that judgment for you. This is the preacher's message. This is the gospel of Ecclesiastes. We're sinners, beastly in our nature in in many ways, and, and we deserve death and judgment. But is there a way? Is there one who can know that we can go upward? And the answer is yes. Is there one who can get us there? The answer is yes. And that answer is simply Jesus. 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 I wonder, do you recognize the dilemma of God's judgment over you? That while your heart may cry out for justice against all that you see, all the causes that you're right to stand for, all the cases that you take up, do you recognize that God has a case against you because of your sin against Him? And have you understood that the only way that you can escape that judgment is through His Son, Jesus Christ? 
And have you placed your faith and trust in Him? Has He saved you from the judgment that's coming? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word today. And Lord, we see in our world what your word has shown us. We see great injustice. We see great oppression. We see the abuse of privilege and position and power. And Father, our hearts lament all that brokenness. And we cry out, let the wrongs be made right. Let the evil be judged. But Father, if we're honest today, we would have to confess that, that we're wrong as well. That we've sinned against you. And as surely as the preacher in Ecclesiastes has told us, the day of the Lord is coming and he will judge. That means that we will be judged. For we have done wrong in your sight. For we have sinned against you. For we have transgressed your, your character and your ways and your law. And Lord, we stand. We stand in judgment. But Father, our hearts rejoice today because you have given a Savior. You have sent your Son into this world so that by faith in him we can escape that coming wrath. And Father, I pray today if there's one here under the sound of my voice that has not trusted in Christ, that today they would know their dilemma. They would know that they stand guilty before you. And God, I pray, I pray that in the recesses of their soul, they would be unable to escape that. And I pray that that may lead them to trusting in Christ, believing in him, as Savior and Lord. Holy Spirit, would you take your word now and work it into every heart. And may all that's done bring honor and glory to you. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.